them for doing that to, for us. Uh, let's just pray and ask that God would uh, communicate to us as we look into his word this morning. Father, we thank you for your word and how it speaks to our life and how it can change our life. And Lord, how you change lives through the gospel. And uh, Lord, as we consider First Peter again, Lord, I just pray that you would bring things to our mind, that you would teach us new things, Lord, that you would motivate us and encourage us. And thank you for the truths that we find in it. Lord, most of all, I just pray that uh, the beauty of Jesus would, uh, would uh, be lifted out of these pages for all of us to see. And Lord, so that that would motivate us in how we live. And so we pray this uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. So a couple of weeks ago, I guess it was three weeks ago, we were uh, back in First uh, Peter, uh, ending what was about four weeks in uh, chapter 2, and we're going to pick up where we left off uh, in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And I began that message suggesting that all of us want to make a difference. We want to make an impact in, in whatever it is that we're doing. But there's often times that we find ourselves trying to make a difference in a situation where it seems like everything is working against us. And so it's easy to conclude that all of our effort and hard work is really going to amount to very little. And I shared uh, an example with you of speaking up at a men's retreat at Joy Bible Camp. Uh, I was also thinking of when we first came to Peterborough, I had spent Oh, 30 years in the Toronto area playing softball, fastball, and slow pitch. And I was at about as high a level in slow pitch when we left uh, our home in Ajax and moved here. And I was in my early 40s, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to find a team that I can play for in Peterborough, and I'm going to make a difference. Uh, like, this is Peterborough. I played in Toronto, so I'm going to show them how to play slow pitch. Uh, and so I found a team that I could play for, and it was in the master's division, which meant you were over 40 years old. I'd never played anything but just regular open uh, ball on, on teams that competed a lot in tournaments, and I pitched, I played third base, I was always known as a really good hitter. And so I figured when I came to this team, it was going to be a bunch of older guys that I was going to show them how to play ball. They were going to put me exactly where I wanted to play. I was going to hit fourth in the lineup as cleanup like I always did. And I showed up to our practice before our first game and realized that these guys were not as interested in playing baseball uh, as I was interested in playing baseball that they had a lot of politics going on their team. And their most important thing of showing up for baseball on any given night was for drinking beer in the parking lot afterwards. And this was totally foreign to any team that I had played on. And so I got there, and I thought I showed them what I could do. And the first game, they put me at the very bottom of the batting order. And they had me, and if you've played slow pitch before, especially if it's not really good slow pitch, and you've got mixed uh, players, meaning you've got some good players and you've got some poor players, often they hide the worst player at back catch. And I got to play back catch the first game, and I batted at the bottom uh, of the order. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll go along with it, and I will show them that I can make a difference to this team. 
Halfway through the year, I was still batting near the bottom of the order. They never let me play the positions that I was best at, and often they would stick me behind the plate as back catcher. And I realized it didn't, no matter, it didn't matter how hard I was going to try, I wasn't going to be allowed uh, to make an impact on the team, and my efforts weren't going to amount to much. And I'm sure you can think of your own stories. But what I want us to think of what it, what it is like being a follower of Jesus and trying to make an impact for his kingdom, trying to make a difference wherever we find ourselves, and yet finding that we're putting all this effort into making a difference in a world that's not so friendly toward our faith and doesn't always respond uh, positively to what we are trying uh, to do. And some of us, we want to make a stand for Jesus at our workplace, in our home, in our neighborhood, uh, in our school, and yet we often find that Jesus and Christianity is the butt end of so many of the jokes. Uh, it's not a topic that people really want to talk about. Or maybe we want to uh, offer our opinion from a biblical perspective on a debate only to find that we're disqualified for that very reason, that our opinion is based on the Bible or from our Christian experience. Or we want to promote values and principles in a world where all those values and principles seem to crash up against the values and principles of the world. Or we want to offer care and compassion to people who are hurting, and yet all we get is, is unjust and unfair treatment in response. And the question I asked you a few weeks ago was, how does that make you feel? How does it make you want to respond trying to make a difference, trying to make an impact, and yet being responded to in all of these negative ways. And for some of us, we just give up. It's not worth the effort. Others of us just choose to segregate ourselves, isolate ourselves, live in little Christian ghettos. The people who Peter is writing to know exactly what we're talking about. They put their faith in Jesus only to find out that Putting their faith in Jesus was going to be the very reason that they were going to be treated so poorly by the people that lived around them. And as we've seen over the weeks that we've looked at 1 Peter, these people have been threatened, they've been ridiculed, they've been ostracized, they've been scattered, they've been persecuted, they've been threatened with death. Some have even been put to death. And so for them, a typical day in the life of a Christian in, first century, in the first century was asking the question, am I going to survive another day? I can't imagine the question, how can I make an impact? How can I make a difference? Was a question that was at the forefront of their mind. Rather, how am I going to survive? And it's to that situation that we find Peter writing. And Peter is pleading with them to understand that not only can you survive, you can thrive living out your faith in a world that's not friendly towards that very faith. And so in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2, we find Peter giving principles about how we can have maximum impact for the kingdom of Jesus, even though we're living in a world that's not that friendly towards our faith. So turn again to uh, chapter 2 if you haven't already. And we'll pick up uh, in verses 11 and 12. Let me just read that to you again. And Peter writes, Dear friends, 
I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And so I suggested that Peter gives us five principles uh, in these two verses. And last time together, we looked at the first two, which I, I said were internal principles. And the first principle was remember and embrace and strive to fully understand your identity in Jesus. Because our identity is the basis for our conduct. You know, as I've spent time, especially in these verses that we're looking at today, various commentators and speakers talking about these these verses, I kept coming across the word piety. Personal piety, public piety. And it's one of those words, like if I was reading it in a story, if I was reading it in a commentary, I, I get what it means. I wouldn't have to stop to figure out this foreign word that I didn't understand. But I kept coming across it and coming across it in my studies. And I thought, well, what does piety really mean? And so I Googled it. And I came across a definition I thought was really good. Piety is our belief as reflected in how we live. And so when it comes to our identity in Jesus, it's what we believe to be true about who we are in Jesus that determines the way that we live. And so we have spent a lot of time talking about our identity in Jesus. Peter talks a lot, spends a lot of time explaining to us who we are in Jesus. But there's a word that I missed three weeks ago when I was speaking, and I meant to cover it, and I didn't. It's the very first uh, two words in the NIV. It may be just the first word if you have a different translation. And it really sums up our identity in Jesus. And in the NIV, Peter says, dear friends. That's not exactly the word in the original language. It's kind of like one of those words, Ben, that you described to us last week, where the translators, in in order to make reading it smooth, have used a word that doesn't get exactly to what Peter was saying. The word that Peter actually says in the English would be beloved. And so it begs the question, beloved of who? Are they beloved by Peter? Which is why we could say, dear friends, I'm writing to you. Yeah, that's true. Peter loves these people dearly. That's why he's pleading with them, trying to help them to understand how they can live in such a hostile environment. But is Peter meaning that they're beloved by God? Well, that's equally true as well. I think we can see that that word refers to both. If we go all the way back to verse 3 of chapter 1, Peter says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Uh, And in, in verse 10, we're told that once we were not a people, but now 
As followers of Jesus, you are the people of God. Once you hadn't received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so as followers of Jesus, we have experienced, we have received the blessing of God's love and God's mercy. And so Peter is appealing to these readers and appealing to us that our conduct is, be, is to be a response of gratitude to the mercy that God has showed us. And that sounds a lot like what Paul says in Romans 12. Remember what he says there in verse 1? In view of God's mercy, in view of all that God has done for you, including this great salvation that we have, in view of all of that mercy, offer your body as a living sacrifice. Offer your entire being out of gratitude and in response to all that God has done for us. And so we are beloved by God. We are those who have received mercy. We are those who should respond out of gratitude and conduct ourselves in a way that is fitting with all that God has done for us. And so we've seen over the last number of weeks, as, as Peter goes through uh, the second chapter of his letter, that, that we are living stones, that, that Jesus has rescued us from the pit of sin, and he's brought us to new life. And he's placed us into this, this wonderful building project of his, the church. And we're promised that we'll never ultimately be put to shame. But rather, honor belongs to those who have put their faith in Jesus. That, that we have been elevated to the, the highest level and status that we could ever imagine. That we are God's chosen race. We are his holy nation. We are the royal priesthood. We are God's special possession. That he has left us here on earth to be his representatives. To tell the world about how excellent he is. And then the last thing we saw about our identity three weeks ago is that because of all this, we have to reorient our self-understanding in relation to the society that we find ourselves in. Because our citizenship is now in heaven. And as such, we're really just temporary visitors passing through this earth on our way to this eternal inheritance, our hope, and heaven. And so we got to remember who we are in Jesus Christ because that's the basis for, on which we uh, will conduct ourselves. And then we saw that the second internal principle was that we need to abstain from sinful desires or passions uh, of the flesh. That if we want to have maximum impact on the outside, we need to be putting maximum work on the inside. A prerequisite to making a difference on the outside is making sure that we're winning the battle on the inside. And so Peter says, do you want to make a difference for the kingdom? Abstain or refuse to feed the passions of the flesh. And we saw that the passions of the flesh, those, those sinful desires are desires that we have because of our fallen nature. They are desires that we have to perform acts for our own self-gratification and not for the glory of God. And when we act upon those lusts and those desires, they become sin. And when we submit to them, they begin to mold us. And Peter says, these lusts, these desires are waging a war against your very soul. 
They want to, to destroy you and they want to destroy your testimony. And so we have to learn to say no. And we're not just talking about sexual sin. We're talking about a whole long list of things, of, of desires and lusts that become sin when we follow through with them that really cover the whole gamut of a list of sin, not just sexual sins. And Peter says, say no. We live in a world that's really a smorgasbord that fulfills all of the passions and lusts that a fallen human can have. To the unsaved, that's what the world is. And that's why the world has such a grip. But to those who are saved, this world's smorgasbord is a huge temptation that's just trying to trip us up. And so Peter says, no, say no to those sinful passions that wage a war against our soul. And so then we come to verse 12 today, and we are going to see some of the external principles that Peter has for us. <coughs> and excuse me. And so principle three is this. Make Jesus beautiful to others by the way that you live your life. Make Jesus beautiful to others by the way in which you live your life. Ever had a visitor come to your house and they have conducted themselves so inappropriately that you have decided they are never coming back again? See, we've got expectations. We have unwritten rules, maybe the written rules, of how we expect visitors into our home conduct themselves. I'm often reminded of, I guess, our unwritten rules when our kids have friends over. Like, I expect that they will shut the front door when they come in, that they will take off their shoes or their boots or whatever they're wearing, that they're not going to run around the house, they're not going to jump on furniture, they're not going to jump on the bed, they're not going to rummage through the cupboards in the kitchen, they're not going to stick their head in our refrigerator, they're not going to complain when uh, Allison gives them something to eat or ask for something different. We all have our list. And when people act inappropriately or don't live up to those expectations, it makes us feel negative towards them. It makes us want to respond by at least not inviting them back again. And as Peter is reflecting on these principles about how we can have maximum impact, he has the visitor mindset, mindset uh, at work. He's already told us that, that we are foreigners and strangers as Christians uh, in this world. And what he wants us to realize is that if we want to make a difference, we need to live appropriately within an unsaved world. Because in many ways, we are just visitors. We need to conduct ourselves in such a way that even though people oppose our faith, they recognize our conduct as good. We need to live in such a way that we minimize the negative stereotypes that people have about Christianity. And so in verse 12, Peter says this, live such good lives. Your Bible, if it's a different translation than our Pew Bible, might say live exemplary lives. 
It might say, uh, maintain conduct that's honorable. Keep your behavior excellent. The word in the Greek here literally means winsome or praiseworthy or lovely or attractive. And so what Peter's saying here is that we need to conduct ourselves in a way that our life is a testimony to those who are, who are, are unsaved. That in the way that we live our life, we need to be exhibiting a goodness that's beautiful. That, that strikes the eye of those who are observing. That those, again, who may totally oppose us for our faith, who don't believe the things that we believe, are still impressed by the way that we live our life. You see, Christians should be seen as the most honest, trustworthy, loving, compassionate, loyal, and the list goes on and on and on people that the unsaved world has the opportunity to bump into. And yet how sad it is to hear of people in the business world that refuse to deal with this business over here because they're a bunch of Christians and they're the most crooked business that we know. And I've run into situations like that. Or to hear employers say, I will not hire that person because they're a Christian and I made that mistake once before. And how tragic How tragic when someone turns their back on Jesus and the gospel because of the behavior of someone who professes to be a follower of Jesus. That unsaved person concludes, I don't know all that is that that person has, but I don't want it. I want nothing to do with it. And so the goal is to make Jesus beautiful to others by the way that we live our life. And Peter in verse 12 gives us another reason to maintain this excellent way of life. And that is that, so that other people will see our good deeds. And I got to stop here and clarify something. This isn't about us. This is not about us. I didn't say that we make ourselves look beautiful by the way that we live our life. It's about making Jesus beautiful. And he is beautiful. But we're making him beautiful to others. And that's really at the essence of magnifying the Lord. Declaring, making it evident how excellent, how beautiful our Savior is. And so we are to make Jesus beautiful to others by the way that we live our life And Peter uses a really interesting word here. He says, we live excellent lives. Why? So that others will see our good deeds. And the interesting word here is see. And the word in the original language that Peter uses. Because it doesn't mean just a quick look or a passing glance. Rather, it's the kind of seeing that happens when you study something for a long time. And so if you have trouble sleeping and you go to one of those sleeping clinics 
and they wire you up and put apparatuses on you and they got a videotape machine or whatever. I guess it's not a videotape machine, but whatever the latest technology is to, to, to keep a record of, of what takes place. You don't go there thinking that the technician or the doctor is going to once or twice take a two-second look to see what's taking place. No, what happens is they watch They're continually watching what's happening and they're monitoring what's happening so they can come to conclusions about what your problems might be. And that's the kind of looking, the kind of seeing that Peter is talking about. And what he's reminding us here is something that might be a little disturbing. We're being watched. As followers of Jesus, whether we like it or not, The unsaved world is observing from a distance, studying what makes us tick, watching how we respond and how we interact and how we involve ourselves and what we involve ourselves in. They're watching us to see what our response is to problems at work or problems at school. They're listening to hear what kind of conversations we're participating in. They're watching to see if we laugh at dirty jokes. They're listening to hear the kind of TV and movie programs that we watch, the music we listen to, the way way we spend our money, the way we dress, the way we spend our spare time. They're watching to see how we respond to tragedy. They're watching to see how we deal with difficult people. And here's the rub. If they don't like what they see, and if it's not offering them anything that they're longing for, they're not going to think much of our salvation. And they're not going to think much of our Savior. You see, the way we live our lives as those who profess to be followers of Jesus either pulls people towards Jesus or pushes them away. I personally know the wonderful feeling of having someone tell me, Brent, it was your example of someone who loves Jesus that drew me closer to him. And I also know the pain of having someone to say to me, Brett, I didn't even know you were a Christian. I became a Christian despite you. Brett, I became a Christian and now I realize you aren't really conducting yourself in the way that I think you should have. I read these testimonies of people who who are preachers or missionaries or Sunday school teachers or workmates and they receive a phone call or a visit or a letter from someone who they haven't seen for 20 years and who says, you know what? I'm a follower of Jesus now. It was something that you said 20 years ago. It was the example that that you displayed. It was your testimony that got me to thinking all those 20 years ago. I finally gave my life to Jesus. I want to thank you 
for your testimony. Oh, I wish I could receive a letter like that. Instead of those who say, Brent, high school? I didn't even know you were a Christian. So that's the question. The way we live our life, are we pulling people towards Jesus? Do they want to know more about what makes us tick? Do they want to know more about our faith and our Savior because they see the kind of life that we live? Or are we pushing them away because they don't want what we got because it looks toxic? Or do they even know that we're a follower of Jesus? If we want to make a difference, we need to make Jesus beautiful to others by the way that we live our life. And before we move on to the fourth principle, there's a couple of assumptions that that Peter makes that I think are really, really important for us to grapple with. First one is that we need to be living this excellent life amongst the unsaved world, not apart from the unsaved world. And maybe that sounds obvious, and probably up to Wednesday, I wasn't even going to add this assumption. It was a conversation that we had at home, and uh, Allison was serving out supper, and one of our expectations in our house is you're not supposed to eat anything until everyone has their plate filled, and we give thanks. As we got into this conversation about giving thanks, and, you know, whether is it ritual, is it significant, and, and, uh, Allison uh, said to my oldest daughter, Lauren, well, you know, even when mom and dad, her and I, are at a restaurant together, we will take a moment just to bow our heads and quietly say uh, thanks. And Lauren asked this question. We're not quite sure how pointed she meant the question to be, but it, it, I got the point. She said, well, what would you do if you're out with a whole bunch of non-Christians? And before we could give our pat answer, She said, but I guess that doesn't happen very often. So both Allison and my immediate response is, well, we're going to defend that. And yet I could, she's right. It's so tempting as a follower of Jesus to be part of a community of faith and keep ourselves so busy and isolate ourselves and separate ourselves from the unsaved world. And Peter's writing this assuming that we're living out our faith right in the middle of the unsaved world. So that's one of the assumptions he has. One of the other assumptions is that there's no such thing as an undercover Christian. I got a funny story that goes with that label. I can't remember if I've shared it with you. If I have, I, I apologize. But Growing up uh, in Toronto in the 80s and the 90s, uh, the Daniel Band was a, like my favorite Christian rock band. I uh, went to one of the chapels and I heard them usually two or three times a month at different coffee houses. And one of the songs that they sang was called Undercover Christian. Years later, so this is going back maybe into the 10, 15 years ago, a friend of mine took all the old Daniel Band songs and burned them onto a CD. I had this CD in my vehicle. As I'm driving along, and I I always used to, well, I still do often, I put my cell phone in my breast pocket, and I'm driving along, and the song Undercover Christian comes on. And how it happened, I don't know, but I accidentally phoned one of my suppliers. (laughs) 
And I, I've dealt with them for years. Uh, not really sure they knew a whole lot about me other than I was a good customer. They were a good supplier. And I bumped my phone. I dialed them. They answered the phone, and all they can hear me, me singing is, Undercover Christian, your faith is rare to see. I wish you were either hot or cold because you're really no use to me. So you say you have faith. That's really good to know or nice to know. But show me your faith by what you do, and maybe your friends will know I love them so. And I sang it at the top. I was having a rock, I was having a rock concert in my vehicle. I got a phone call. They put me on speaker through the whole office. And they've been good about it because they've never mentioned it other than the one time. But I had to answer the question, what were you singing about? There's no such thing as an undercover Christian. And I say that because in all seriousness, there's probably some of you here, and when you talk about your faith, it's a personal thing. That you don't really like to talk about your faith to other people. And yet when I read the New Testament, I read the words of Jesus, to be blunt, I think Jesus would say, I don't get it. You can't love me and love your neighbor without exhibiting actions and attitudes that will put you uh, to, to uh, public scrutiny. You, you can't live an undercover Christian life. And then the, the final assumption is kind of related to that, is that if we're living our life the way that we should be living our life, we can't help but stand out against and apart from the unsaved world. You can't be following the, the teaching of Jesus and his commands with no compromise without being a light shining in darkness. You, you can't help but be set apart. Okay, so that, that's the third principle, and, and, and the next two principles are fairly short so that we will end on time. But principle number four is this. Don't be surprised when you're treated or attacked unjustly or unfairly. Live excellent lives anyways. Imagine what it would be like if you left for church this morning and you knew that your neighbor was staring at you out their window and they're convinced that you attend church to participate in a murderous, incestuous, drunken orgy. And when you come home and you drive in your driveway, you can see the neighbor staring at you through the window. And they don't let their children play with your children. In fact, they avoid you. And they, they, you know that they've got all these untrue assumptions and accusations about you, but they don't talk to you about it. Instead, they talk to your neighbors about it, and they, they gossip behind your back. The only thing they do to you is hurl insults at you. How would that make you feel? An even more important question is, how would you conduct yourself when you found yourself in their company? I realize that may be a little far-fetched of an illustration. Maybe some of it rings a little bit true. But that was the everyday occurrence for Peter's readers. They were accused of cannibalism and murder. 
Because they ate the body and drank the blood of Jesus. They were accused of immorality and incest. They participated in, in love feasts and they called each other brother and sister. They were accused of of atheism because they wouldn't worship idols. They were accused of treason because they wouldn't say that Caesar was Lord. They were accused of being bad for business. They were accused of, of breaking up families. That's why they were treated the way that they were. And Peter's advice? Live excellent lives, even if you're accused of doing wrong. You want to make a difference? Live excellent lives. Don't be surprised that you'll be treated unjustly and unfairly. Conduct yourselves in such a way that no one can bring an honest attack against you. You see, the reality is if we live the kind of life that Peter is proposing we are going to be met, we are going to provoke a number of various responses. And we shouldn't be surprised because the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that good is a threat to evil, that that righteous living is a threat to sinful living, that light exposes darkness, and darkness just doesn't sit idly by. Rather, darkness strikes back at the light. And that's why we're treated unjustly and unfairly. But Peter's advice, you want to make a difference? Don't be surprised. Live excellent lives anyway. And yes, there are times that we are, we, we are right to defend ourselves. Even the early church was known for writing tracts. We're not wet noodles. But there are times we just need to leave it in God's hand. And then we come to the fifth principle. Don't forget. In fact, live your life against the backdrop of the truth that Jesus is coming back. Don't forget it. Peter says right at the end of verse 12, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We don't have a whole lot of time, and I'm not going to take a lot of time, to explain what Peter may mean by this visitation of God when when he visits us again. But, But Peter is writing against the backdrop of Isaiah and some other Old Testament passages that he's already referred to. And and in the Old Testament, the day of God's visit, it refers to when God visits earth, whether it's for blessing or whether it's for judgment. And here in Peter's theology, he's talking about when Jesus returns. And that's going to be good news for some people and that's going to be bad news for others. And Peter is saying that we need to live our lives in such a way that those who observe and who are watching us want to know more about this Jesus and that some will be one to Jesus. And then when Jesus returns, they will join us in glorifying and praising him. There's a sense of urgency here. 
And I don't know how many of us live with that sense of urgency. I can tell you that I don't get up in the morning and go, you know what? Jesus might return today. I got a lot of work to do. But I think that's what Peter thinks we should be doing every morning. Having that sense of urgency that Jesus is returning. And when he returns, it's going to be bad news for those who have rejected him. They will be judged for their sin. They will be forced to recognize the sovereignty and the supremacy of Jesus. But it will be too late. How can we have a maximum impact for the kingdom? Put these principles into action. One commentator summarized this whole message. Live for Jesus from the inside out. You know, we talk about how we want to work together to see people come to Christ. It needs to be a priority. And we offer courses and there's books and there's seminars and there's tracks and there's various tools. The most effective tool of evangelism that you have is your life. Because there are people... The only Bible they're going to read is your life. The only Jesus they're going to see is the Jesus in your life. And so may we be motivated to live the excellent life that draws people to Jesus so that they may share in what we have, a relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ. Ernie.